do in the winter. Hello and welcome to What We Do in the Winter. This is the 57th episode in this series of podcasts from the Isles of Mull, Iona, Ulva, Gometra and Erid. I'm Alistair Satchel, the love outside of Dervig in the north of Mull, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, I talk with Don Reed of Tobermory. I hope this finds you happy and well, wherever and whenever you be. Don comes originally from Belfast in Northern Ireland. We talk about growing up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, her family, her choice to come and study in Edinburgh, the relative attractiveness of people in rural as opposed to urban settings, the development of the island bakery business, how international market trends affect a rural business such as theirs, and so, so much more. Don and I were able to record this at my house when COVID restrictions were lifted. Towards the end of the episode, Don goes into more detail on some of the darker parts of life in Northern Ireland during the Troubles, so just a wee heads up so as not to cause any distress about that. Without further ado, I'm absolutely delighted to pass you over to Don Reid. Who are you? <laughs> well, I'm Dawn, Dawn Reed. Um, I um, oh, I don't know what to say. I'm Dawn Reed. <laughs> that's, that's a good enough answer. I'll take that. <laughs> Ten points. What head. is the capital of <laughs> Uruguay? Uh, oh gosh, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, you did a degree in geography as well. <laughs> Do you know? Montevideo. Oh, um, right. Okay. <laughs> that's because I'm an arsehole. <laughs> uh, so you're, you're Dawn Reed. <laughs> Where, um, where are you from originally, Dawn? I was born in Belfast in 1972. So I grew up there, you know, all my childhood until I was 18. Right. When I came to Scotland to study. And Belfast, 1972, so that's kind of the height of a very dramatic time, mm-hmm. commonly referred to as the Troubles. Um, yeah. Growing up in that situation, were you conscious of this is the daftest question anyone's ever asked anyone ever but were you conscious of the nation no, the nature of the troubles y- yes and no yeah. um you know memories of my childhood rarely have elements of politics or trouble yeah. in them my childhood was much about family life yeah. family centered i think all of the the politics that were going on did kind of interject at times but day to day no <laughs> not really it's not maybe that we weren't conscious of it it was just that they weren't remarkable to us and it's normal yes it's only later when maybe you're a teenager uh, or when I was a late teenager and brought friends back from Scotland or England to visit and they were a bit taken aback by things yeah. they saw which I wouldn't have batted an eyelid about what kind of things were those um mm. Armoured Land Rovers with either police or army checkpoints, guns on, you know, pe- yeah. armed men carrying guns. Although by then it was starting to sort of roll back a little bit. Yeah. But, you know, I have quite fond memories of, you know, my mum and I and my granny, my mum's mum, we'd quite often have a, a Saturday morning in town. We just call it town. Yeah. Um, so like the city centre. So... Usually my dad or my granddad would drop us in in the car, we'd get out and then when you... It was just to, to the shops, really, you know, like Boots, yeah. Marks and Spencer's, yeah. CNA, <laughs> all, the classics. all those places. And to get into the sort of shopping streets, which the main one was called Donegal Place, I think. Mm-hmm. 
when when I was a child, although I think it's, it had gone by the time I was a late teenager, you would have to go through a checkpoint to get into the... Really? Yeah. And it's funny, like, you, it, you just accepted it just the same as you accept yeah. going through airport security now. It's yes. a similar kind of thing, yeah. except not having an x-ray machine. So there would be, um, quite often it was women in... I think there were RUC uniforms, but it may have been a kind of subsection of security forces right. manning these checkpoints, and they were they they had a they were sort of sheltered because it obviously rained a lot in Belfast, and they had like wooden floor, and you filed in, and I can really wow. really remember the the noise of it's like wood raised above tarmac, so it had that hollow. Wow! Yeah, sound. yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. And you just sort of file through. Ladies have to show their bags. Yeah. They looked into their bags and they had a wee sort of, I don't know what it was, a sort of up, yeah. stick yeah. <laughs> that they, um, you know, shoved into your bag and waved around. And then if it didn't beep, <laughs> you went through. Yeah. And the same at the doorways for all the shops, like Boots. All the, all the main sort of chains, smaller shops wouldn't have had them, but you'd have to go through the same Process. routine yeah. in all the shops. And then once you're in, you... Did you shopping? <laughs> Gosh, and so what was the centre of Belfast like in those days? What was the, what were there were there any special treats you go to for like street food or like was there a donut stall or something? What was oh the, the one thing that I remember that's sort of maybe unique to Belfast at the time was a a sort of it was called Mickey Marley's Roundabout. And it was a man, I don't know if his name was actually Mickey Marley or if that was his grandfather or his father, or I'm sure it was a real person at some yeah. point. And I can't remember if it was if he had it on, if it was horse drawn on a trailer or if it was brought in on a car, but it was just like a, a little small fairground All right, okay. roundabout for kids to go on. Lovely. I don't know if I actually ever rode on it, but it was there Aye. all the time. <laughs> It was like the bumblebees and yeah. Yeah, the ladybirds actually in the room. Were they floating things or that was a wee or... um, carnival attraction yeah. thing? It was down the front by the bouncy castle. Yeah. I think there is a song called Mickey Marley's Roundabout. I'll see if I can find it. And I can That's awesome. Think. Yeah, I'd love yeah. That. yeah. So growing up in Belfast, um, in terms of being a child and and fun things to do and communal things to do. What were the kind of <laughs> communal experiences and what were the big spaces that you'd go to and do things uh, in? Well, I mean, we lived in a quite quite a suburban place. We lived um, in an area called the Hollywood Road, Ho- as in spelled Holy, not yeah. Holly, but pronounced Holly. So it's not like L.A. Hollywood, mm. but yeah. <laughs> it was kind of at the end of like the very outskirts of Belfast we were very close to rural spaces um, and there was quite a lot of still undeveloped land especially the first street that I grew up in was a sort of cul-de-sac and there was a lot of fields and bramble bushes although I don't think we call them brambles I think it was just blackberries we we called them Um, so we had quite a lot of freedom you know the kids on the street we all had bikes there was there were the Adairs um, the Gardeners, we were the Simpsons and Johnsons and Hamels. Right, okay. <laughs> Hamels had, they they came late, they had ice cream vans. Ooh. Um, Ooh. They had stockpiles of sweets. It was like <laughs> quite exciting. Hey, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you know, it was like the 70s and we had um, 
choppers and oh, I had bike. a Triumph 20 bike, which wasn't as cool. But yeah, we used to race up, up and down the street and what was know, the, all sorts of stuff. What was your favourite sweet from, from oh. the Hamels? <laughs> was it the flying saucer? Was oh, it the Sherwood Dib Dab? Oh no, the flying saucers were, I hated them. Right. My dad's mum used to buy us a bag of those and think she was giving us <laughs> the world. And I, oh. <laughs> I just hated them. Oh, <laughs> and you'd have to go, no, thanks, Franny. Oh, they really stick to the top of your mouth. Oh, <laughs> yeah. it's great. Yeah. No, I, I don't remember actually eating many of the sweets. I just remember clocking them and thinking, <laughs> wow. <laughs> that's amazing yeah. how do you feel about biscuits now <laughs> yeah. Yeah. fantastic uh, but we used to, like what like our in the summer summer holidays we would um you know we'd be given a couple of i suppose it would be 10p or right. maybe 20p later and you would walk up to the garage like you know filling station mm-hmm. which had you know all your sweets and an ice cream um chill and in Northern Ireland, the ice cream makers were called Dale Farm and they had their own oh. type of lollies. Um, and were they nice? Yes, oh. they were amazing. There mm. was um, pear picking porky, which oh. was like, a <laughs> it was a frozen pear juice. Oh, well, wow. Not juice, I'm sure it was just flavour, but yeah. um, mm, that was tart. good. Oh, it, was, it was sweet and lovely, really mm. nice, like a pear drop or a, oh, mm. a white American hard gum type mm. flavour. Mm. They also had poly pineapple. Um, there was a mint one. They all had like really cute illustrations on them, like a mint chop chip oh. and um, a giant bar, which was just a sort of slab of ice cream with a stick in it. That sounds amazing. Um, <laughs> so it, it was, you know, it was uh, local confections, I suppose, yeah. rather than big global corporations. Well, ones. this takes us into a very, very important territory. <laughs> Can you please explain to me and the listener, what is Tato? Oh, the best crisps. <laughs> Cheese and onion from Tandra Gay from Tato Castle. <laughs> so what is it about? Yeah, because I've never had Tato. I'm desperate to try them. Um, um, what is it about them? I think it, it's just, I mean, to be honest, they're probably not that special, but they're very unique in the cheese and onion flavour profile. They're quite... Sharp, they're a bit like Isle of Mull cheese, and that gives oh, you that kind of tingle in the kind of inside thing. of your cheek. Yeah. A bit like that. Yeah. So, yeah, there's quite a, a, a lot of Northern Irish things. Tato, cheese and onion, one. Club orange, which is a bit like Fanta, but it has bits. So it's a bit more like Orangina, but totally artificial colour. I think I remember that from childhood. That was good. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we used to get a lemonade, like a, a Laura, a delivery we called them minerals, I don't know why, oh, right, okay. but it'd be like the mineral van would come and you could buy, it was Cantrell and Cochrane were the company, I think, that made it, or Main, M-A-I-N-E, mm-hmm. um, and you'd get lemonade, brown lemonade, which was brown. Like <laughs> something one makes when one's run well. <laughs> and that's the one we would get because wow. it was nice. Um, oh. And you could get raspberryade, limeade, pineappleade, cola, all sorts, and that would come down your street and you buy it you get a bread van as well yeah from ormo bakery and mum used to buy a chocolate sponge from mm. that every saturday and was that a van that you went in the back <laughs> of or was it the side of it no you just stand at the back and right. uh, they had really deep drawers and oh, the gosh. baker or driver would serve you what you wanted yeah pretty so cool lovely. i was a bit a little bit shy very shy actually as a young child but i, I continued to be quite reserved and quite unadventurous 
and yeah. quite scared, I think, yeah. of, of putting myself out there too much or going out of my comfort zone. Like a lot of my friends would have gone to gigs. Like yeah. my friends went to Pogues gigs and oh always at New Year's Eve and I was always far too scared to go because I just, I don't know. I, I'm sure it would have been fine, yeah. but I mean, they would drink a lot and, and there would be some tales <laughs> that I wouldn't want recorded. But yes. um, whilst I thought, yeah, they've had a great time, I was always quite, ooh, <laughs> a bit wobbly. Yeah about it so I never went to any concerts or gigs not that there were that many in right. Belfast well right. there there were but you wouldn't have got the biggest names your parents where had your parents come from well my mum and dad were both born in Belfast uh my I know less about my dad's family history beyond sort of that generation although I I think my dad's understands that some branch of the family were Scottish originally, which isn't surprising because I think quite a lot of yeah. Scottish families oh, moved course, to yeah. Ulster at various points in history. But from what I knew, they were all in Belfast, that side of the family. Um, my mum's father was born in Fulham in London right. and his family had originally come from Norfolk before that. Wow. Um, his mother had been Joan Collins' housekeeper <laughs> when she was swanky. a young starlet. Oh, gosh. Um, she worked in service for big, you know, well-off people. Yeah. I don't know much about his father. Um, so my granddad, Jim, he was he joined the Navy and was stationed in Belfast for a short while before he went off yeah. that active service. And that's where he met my granny while well, she grew up in Belfast, was born in Glasgow, and her family were all Glaswegian. Right. Yeah. Oh. All from Govan, and I think her father moved to Belfast because he was a shipbuilder, and he went over there for that work. was one of my next questions, was mm-hmm. what were you aware of in the connections in terms of shipbuilding? But mm-hmm. we'll come on to that in a second. But you said your dad, earlier on before we were recording, you said your dad is the ninth of nine. Yes. And not the seventh son, not the seventh <laughs> son. I do reference, but... Yeah. Um, the, uh, what was it like having presumably quite a large family around you? Yeah, then? well, it's funny because I, we grew up much closer and seeing a lot more of mum's family, which I think is common because you do, I think the mum's family tend to be more involved often. Yeah, dad, he was the youngest, so I think a lot of his older siblings had already left home, but they lived, right. I mean, my granny lived in the same house probably since she got married and it was like the sort of house you see on Coronation Street like a red brick Victorian terrace lovely um, with an outside toilet oh wow three bedrooms in fact she didn't even have a bathroom put in in her lifetime um, she washed in the kitchen sink or something um, like they had a tin bath in front wow. of the fire so they had a front room Gosh. and a back room uh, I think she called the f- the front room was the parlour yeah which had war glass in it because it had it was all sort of warped and been you know it had been replaced during the wow. Second World War. Um, oh, in her front room, you know, it had cab- glass cabinets with all her sort of treasures in them. And because she was a war widow, she was the loyalist, most loyal royal follower and lover. Mm. You could, I mean, I know yeah. many people I know and love aren't very keen on the institution of monarchy. Yeah. but my granny. Loved it. Loved it. Oh. And she she actually attended the Queen Queen Elizabeth's coronation um, as a war widow. Wow. They invi- I think they invited 100 war widows from 
the whole of Britain. Um, you didn't actually, she didn't actually get into the Abbey, but she and my auntie Edie, I think it was, went with her. Because right. it was told to me many times right. about wonderful how proud she was. <laughs> Elizabeth was lovely. <laughs> um, and my, my granny was called Elizabeth right. and her nickname was Queenie. Everyone called her Queenie. My dad still refers to her as Queenie. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, and she was born in the same year as the Queen Mother. Right. Um, so there was a lot of royal, royal um, appreciation yeah. on that side of the family. Yeah. <laughs> What, um, what did your parents do for, for work during their time? Uh, my dad... Because they're both still with us, Yes, they? they are. Um, dad, most of his working life, he worked for what was then known as Shorts, Short Brothers, and it's now Bombardier, and it was an aircraft factory. He was a fitter, I think, um, and he would make parts and fit them to planes. They had their own planes originally, the Shorts... 330 and the shorts 360 they're like teapots mm -hmm. um <laughs> but they made the engine cowls for Boeing right and they made wings for Fokker oh. um and I think they also made a few um military related items yeah. missiles and things um oh. although that was a bit more secretive of dad I think dad had much to do with that part or was intimately involved but never said anything <laughs> no. yeah. um and he ended up being an inspector, but I don't think he enjoyed that right. very much because I think he preferred working with his hands and making things. Um, he would be one of the first people they would go to if they'd drawn a new part or prototype design and he would make it so that they could see how it worked and that sort of thing. I'm hearing a bird outside, yeah. so and the dog, <laughs> my dog's listening to the bird Breaking outside. Out the ears. Yeah, so yeah, he, he worked there. That was, you know... There were Shorts and Harland and Wolf, which yeah. you've probably heard of, yeah. were the main sort of East Belfast industrial employers. Um, there was a, a lot of kind of workers' houses and, yeah. you know, there'd be big influx into those. They were right next to each other. Right. Um, in and out. They'd go in. I think Dad started work at seven or half seven and he would home, be home by four, four oh, thirty. Um, so did you see a lot of them then as a child? Well, he would, yeah, he'd come home, you know, just after us getting home from, or shortly yeah. after we got home from school. He'd be home before mum. I mean, mum didn't work until we were, until I was about nine. Yeah. Um, but after that, she had various jobs in retail. Um, Did she enjoy them? Oh, yeah. She's very sociable. <laughs> but, I think, well, I think her, her, last her last job, she worked for NIE, Northern Ireland Electric, which um, is like the Scottish hydroelectric yeah. equivalent. So... Initially, she was sort of in the showroom selling fridges, microwaves, all that sort of thing. And then, but then she got moves into sort of credit control where people come in to help pay their bills, and there was a lot of confrontation and unpleasantness. Yeah, her job was in the city centre, so she was often evacuated for bomb scares and things like that. But gosh, yeah. yeah. Your friends coming from uh, Edinburgh and Scotland and uh, elsewhere in your university times to Belfast, what did they make of of uh, Belfast and the realities of, of everyday life there? Yeah, well, I think really it was seeing these Land Rovers, as I mentioned earlier, was a bit of a shock to their system, juxtaposed with road signs that were British. Right. That 
you know, Northern Ireland is and was part of the United Kingdom, yeah. so the road signs are the same. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, mostly a lot yeah. of things are the same as they would be in Dervig or yeah. London or wherever else. Yeah. Um, Cardiff or wherever. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think seeing, you know, armed, uniformed people was a bit of a shock. But I think, you know, once they got over that and we went, you know, we'd go to... Well, the Crown Pub, I remember a wonderful night in there one time with various friends, including Joe. Mm. Um, it was funny. I met quite a lot of friends from Belfast in Edinburgh. Right. People I would never have met had, had I stayed in Belfast, strangely. Right. Who were Catholic, yeah. mostly. Um, not all, some were not. You know, you probably read... That book, Joan Lingard's book, I can't even remember what it's called, Through yeah. the Barricades or yeah. something. I didn't, but I know. Um, what I mean. yeah. <laughs> do you know? I read that book too, and it was as foreign to me as it was to right. um, somebody reading it in Glasgow. Whilst it was happening in my city, yeah. it, it wasn't in my part of the city. Right. And we lived in a East Belfast, it was very, very almost exclusively protestant there were some catholic families living in and around where we lived and i knew we knew who they were and they were very accepted and yeah. everything but we didn't live in sort of well it's, it's hard to say it wasn't a ghetto because it was exclusively one type of person it's not something that was to the forefront of our minds because it was such a big area of same type people yeah. whereas actually quite recently on a recent trip to belfast when i took Alison and Norman mm. and we had a weekend in Belfast a couple of years ago and they wanted to see the barricades and Shankill Road and, so and the murals and, yeah. and things and it's not anywhere I had ever been before I was just as much a tourist there as they were and it was yeah that's really interesting <laughs> yeah it's I don't know what I'm trying to say but um it's different registers yeah. of being you, you yeah. you're in a you're in a register of kind of the immediate of everyday life. Yeah. And yeah, there's parts of Dunoon I've still never been to. Yeah. And yeah. Dunoon's tiny. And why would you? I know, exactly. You know, yeah, you yeah, go yeah. from your area of a city to the city centre yeah. and back. And if you have friends, maybe in a couple other areas, you might visit there. But um, that was it. Yeah. But yeah, I met I met a lot of friends from the north side of Belfast in Edinburgh. And, you know, we'd go and visit them then once during the summer holidays Lovely. and stuff. And that was great. Yes. Really good. Oh, yeah, I mean, when when you asked me earlier about was I conscious of the troubles and so on, yes and no. I, I mean, I do remember things like the news, bit local news being on and Jerry Adams maybe or Martin mm. McGuinness being interviewed. Yeah. Sometimes at some periods in history you could actually hear their voice and then at yes. other periods they Redacted, were yeah. voiced by an actor yeah. and so on. But, yeah, I mean, I can remember my granny my mum's mum or my mum and dad well probably more mum they'd get very angry at what was being said on the tv and very agitated and so on but you know growing up as a protestant sort of cultural I mean we weren't religious at yeah. all but in that culture you you don't ever really learn about a catholic culture or a catholic experience mm. of life and all the history we were taught at school was British history by and large. Yeah. I didn't really know much at all about how 
civil rights for Catholics were severely curtailed and mm-hmm. you know <laughs> it doesn't sound like a lot of fun no. but I didn't really know about any of that um, until much later um, through sort of making an effort to find out <laughs> um, so you know whilst the IRA were no um, picnic and they did carry out quite a lot of pretty horrific things so did the Protestants yes, but um, you know in my little world, they were vilified by my family, um, but there was no kind of perspective as to what their cause was about, why they were doing what they were doing. Unforgivable things. Yeah. You don't do that. No. You, you try and have a debate. Yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. you know, and, and Thatcher, whilst yeah. she's hated yeah. by me for many yeah. things that she's done yeah. in Britain, was very much appreciated by people I knew in Belfast for, Why was that? for her, you know, standing up to the terrorists right. and not, you know, I'm not saying I agree or disagree, no. but um, yeah, she, she was formidable yeah. in face of that. There was, yeah. <laughs> following on from Thatcher though, um, John Major became an interesting character within that because I I wonder if how John Major is going to be viewed by history. Yeah. Because if they remember, <laughs> if they remember him, they'll remember the peas and Norma and Edwina. But that's about yeah. it. <laughs> but yes. uh, um, the, you know, he stepping towards the Good Friday Agreement. He laid a lot of the groundwork mm. from that. From what I understand, I could be very wrong in saying uh, this. I, but I don't know else to really. Yeah. I mean, I'd I'd left by the time I was eighteen. And whilst kept a sort of interest, I was quite glad to be out of it. Oh, yes, Um, You know, arriving in Edinburgh was... You know, for a while I was in the Royal Naval Reserve in Edinburgh. Really? As a student, yes. Um, It was good fun. In fact, I was with uh, Fiona Brunton's brother, Alistair, was also in it. Ah. Um, So I met him there, but I haven't seen him since, actually. So if you're listening, Alistair, (laughs) hi. Um, Ahoy. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Uh, yeah, and you know, I I would go on a bus from Pollock Halls to HMS Claverhouse, sort of near Ferry Road in the oh, north of Edinburgh, in my uniform, which you know you just wow. wouldn't have done in Belfast. You couldn't have done. No. And when it got to Christmas, the commanding officer called me. And I was only I only went once a week as a bit yeah. of a jolly. You know, it was fun. Um, the commanding officer called me in and told me that I wouldn't be allowed to travel to Belfast for Christmas. <laughs> Uh, but so that was quite. I was like, "What? You know?" Why? It's like because, because you you'd be a legitimate target. And you've got a, a, you know, an armed forces badge, and you know. So what did you do? <laughs> I just went because <laughs> uh, I figured that I probably wouldn't have been a high target, a high bounty. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We got her finally. <laughs> yeah, um, but I think you know, from the Edinburgh perspective, it was much bigger deal um right. and in the summer i went and attended the royal navy reserves in belfast which was much more fun wow what did you get to yeah. do there oh we actually got to go on boats there ah. in edinburgh it was all about marching up and down and drill and drinking <laughs> learning the ranks and things right, like that okay. lots of yeah drinking <laughs> which way to pass the port and ah. yeah that was fun that was really good fun <laughs> Your yeah. daily rum ration. <laughs> I got a lot of teasing from my friends for being in it, so I didn't last, but yeah. Well, we're in Edinburgh. What took you to Edinburgh? 
for a long time as, as a kid, I wanted to be an architect and that was sort of the direction I was heading in for most of my career plan type thing. What does that word mean? <laughs> I don't know. But then I struggled a wee bit with physics, A-level, with the mathematical part and I kind of lost confidence in right. that plan. And also my parents were quite strict about what time I had to be hit home and right. all of that. And I just thought... If I stayed in Northern Ireland for university, there are two very good universities there. Mm-hmm. I just knew I wouldn't have the freedom and the life that I was hoping for. Um, and I, But my parents, I know, really were not particularly well off. They weren't poor, but they weren't didn't have any spare. So it was very selfish of me because I know that they would have preferred to have me stay at home and it would have been much more affordable all around. But I knew better. Um, so I was looking for, you know, flying the the country, basically. Yeah. Um, Scotland, I'd only been to Scotland once before, I think. Uh, to, twice, in fact. Both times to Butlins in Air. Oh, no way. <laughs> On family holidays. There was a good swimming pool there. <laughs> yes. A very good swimming yeah. pool there, yeah. So we went with my dad's side of the family, a big group of us, and we had a great time. Nice. But I'd never been to Glasgow or Edinburgh, Um but yeah, I just thought, oh, Scotland, it's not too far. It's a bit, it's sort of similar. London and England seem very foreign um, in terms of culture. And, yeah, yeah. and obviously I was thinking about the cost of living a wee bit as well. Well, I, I'd applied to St Andrews and Edinburgh to do history of art because, nice. well, apart from the fact I was quite interested in it, um, it was a subject that was not offered by any institution in Northern Ireland. Well, that's, you have to go away then if you were to do that. Yes, yes. Yes, my cunning plan. So that's what that's what I ended up doing. I'd got offers from both St Andrews and Edinburgh, and I think I chose Edinburgh because a very good friend of mine was going to St Andrews, and I thought it would be better not to be in the same place. Totally agree. Um, yeah. And her sister had been in Edinburgh and had. Yeah, so you get to be brilliant. yourself. So, yeah. yeah, I ended up there. Yeah, And it was history of art? Yeah. I toyed with the idea of art school. I went to see... You certainly would have done well. Well, I might have done, but yeah, I, again, it comes back to me being a little bit timid and a right. little bit shy and a bit un- lacking confidence. You certainly um, caught up anyway. Well, <laughs> I went to see... Belfast Art School which is part of the University of Ulster and you know the people there were what you would expect to see at an art school expressing themselves yes. through in the 90s clothes exactly, and hair yeah. and piercings and yeah. tattoos or whatever yeah. um, and at the time I would have been a barber wearing lacy blouse type girl okay. um, and I just couldn't see myself fitting in there although that was totally stupid I wish someone had taken me in hand really but I think going to Edinburgh University and studying history of art much as though I did really enjoy the subject the my peers on the course were not from the families of doctors lawyers and so on they were aristocracy oh Christ we were in tutorials with um people who owned Rubens artworks and right. you know would be studying Rubens and yeah. and someone would Daddy's got that one. Yes. <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> I don't think my parents even owned a, an original painting, never right. mind a master, you know. Yeah. And again, I just didn't have the confidence to 
assert myself amongst them. <laughs> because, well, I knew I didn't fit. Yeah. At that point, I thought the kind of employment that a history of art degree would likely get me, which again was completely wrong. And I wish someone had, you know, said, well, hang on, you yeah. know, that's not necessarily true. I thought, oh, well, the jobs will be working for Sotheby's or Christie's, dealing in these types of artwork. So you're a Brian Sewell at a wannabe. Yeah, and I just <laughs> won't cut it with the buyer because I, I'm not from a stately home. So I changed my degree, which is a great thing you can do in Scottish yeah. universities um, because I was doing geography as a, a subject, as an outside subject. And I thought, well, I'll, I'll change to geography because the employment prospects be much broader and, yeah. you know... And I enjoy it. Um, so I carried on with geography and history of architecture for another year and a bit of politics. So oh, lovely. It's quite a blend of Yeah, that's an <laughs> amazing education. But that's what, you know, that's what's good about Scottish universities, I think. Yeah. So that was sort of one element. Yeah. You know, you, you find your tribe at, yes. at uni and they were a real mixed bag. You know, it didn't actually matter what their parents did anymore it was like do you like that person or not yes no um you know whether they're an aristocrat or not yeah well I didn't have that very many no aristocratic (laughs) friends but um (laughs) the least most were so unfriendly (laughs) I can't tell you yeah Um, but yeah I I guess it knocked off the things that didn't matter yeah after a while so well then the question (laughs) the question then is how did you find your tribe? I think it's a kind of lucky dip, isn't it, as to who you meet? But, yeah. um, you know, this sounds really cheesy, but the first person I met at university who carried my bags from my parents' Ford Escort to my room was Joe Reed. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> That's true. not true. It is absolutely true. He was the first person I met, sweat oh, eyes on. Me. Um, I'd love to say it was love at first sight, but really it wasn't. It was just like, Who are you after? where's my room? <laughs> <You know? laughs> yeah, exactly. And my, but when he, he helped oh. carry some stuff off and then he disappeared. And my mum said, well, I don't like the look of him. <laughs> <laughs> and she hasn't changed. No. <laughs> I think she likes him now. But um, no, I mean, I lived on, I was on the same corridor as Joe. And, um I remember going out of my room um, to the bathroom and there was this sort of Hispanic-looking chap um, coming down the corridor as I walked towards the toilet and he was he had a Belfast accent and he was like, um, are you moving in here? <laughs> and I was like, what a twat. Of course I'm moving in here. What do you think I'm doing here? Um, <laughs> I thought it was a stupid question. But actually... His name was Carlos Bain, and he'd grown up in Dundonald. He'd been at the same primary school as me. Oh, no way. Um, he was Joe's best friend. I'd been at school with his brother in my, in my class at Strandtown oh. Primary. And Carlos introduced me to various people, including Joe. Wow. Uh, he said, come and meet my friend Joe. You're doing history of art, and he's just been interrailing, so he's got loads of photos of um, Rome. <laughs> And I dutifully sat and looked through this stack of photos that was, you know, four Whoa. inches tall. Anyway, and just all the people in Pollock Halls was the starting point and you just go to student unions and enjoy yourself and that's how your circle of friends builds.
Edinburgh. Mm-hmm. You've got your pals. You've got uh, you've met Joe. What was your first date with Joe? Do you remember? Oh, I didn't really have a date. Um, not really, because we were really good friends from Lovely. very start. Um, in a in a wide circle friends. In fact, I did go out with one of his flatmates for two years. Why? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then it's always good to have a backup. Yes, <laughs> we gloss it. We just gloss over that. Um, <laughs> so I don't know. It just sort of crept up on us. I think I I knew that I I kind of knew that Joe liked me, and I knew he was a really great guy. Yeah. Um, well, I, I'd come to Mull to visit him with a couple, two other friends one summer, sort of probably about ninety two or three. And saw, you know, where he lived in the farm and he was just seemed to be in his element there. And I, yeah, sort of saw him in a different light because he, yeah. he, he had a bit more um, responsibility here, even though he didn't have really much responsibility because it wasn't his farm, but he had a role and he fitted in yeah. here, um, which at, in university was completely carefree and a bit silly, very silly, very immature in some ways but he, but in he he was always able to sort of take control and organize things to happen and make things happen even at uni yeah. which was great but yes i i find him more um more attractive <laughs> in the rural setting and yeah. you know he just seemed to be more more himself i suppose don't know what he'll think of me saying this that trip um led to a tender embrace <laughs> And then our, our relationship sort of fl- flipped and flopped a bit because um, I was still I was still seeing someone else for a while, and then that eventually fizzled out. And then Joe was quite what's the word predatory. <laughs> no, he was quite. Uh, he, you know, he made it clear that he would quite like to have a relationship with yeah. me, but I was not quite ready for it at that point. So there was a lot of kind of. False starts and things like that. I think it was growing um, up as Yeah. And, you know, it was what really kind of put us together was Joe was a year ahead of me. So oh, he right. graduated and come back to Mull right. for my final year. I remember, I think it, it was October and I'd had a night out with all my friends and I really missed Joe. I just really missed him. Fantastic. He was missing. Yeah. Um, and I just thought, I'm going to go and see Joe tomorrow. It was a Friday night. I took myself to the station. I phoned Joe. I said, I'm coming. <laughs> I got on the train. I don't think he knew what, you know, any. I, I wasn't sort of going to, you know, for any great plan or anything, but I just knew I wanted to see him. Yeah. And that I did. And we had a lovely weekend. We went to the Missionist Disco. Oh, excellent. Uh, I can remember Michelle being dressed up as a witch behind the bar. <laughs> well, I didn't know who she was then, but I know now. And Alison and Norman were, were also there. That's really? The time I'd met them. Um, so, yeah, we had a good good weekend. And I think that was basically, right. that's when it really started as a relationship. That's lovely. In 93, that must have been. Gosh. Yeah. <laughs> What was the point when you chose to come to Mum? Mm. Well, it was a decision, but in a way it really just happened. Right. Um, I remember, I don't know which month it was, but it was probably after Christmas 94, 
oh, Christmas 93 into the sort of spring of 94. And Joe hadn't got himself a job or anything in the intervening time since he graduated. I think he had been thinking about journalism, but he didn't, and well. he sort of thought about a PhD, but he didn't really know what he wanted to do. I think he just wanted to extend his time at uni until he knew what he wanted to do. Um, but I think his mum and dad were kind of anxious for him to find a role because they didn't have a, a role for him at the farm. Oh, right. Okay. Um, because Garth and Brendan were enough to, yeah. you know... At that scale. Either to to afford for the farm to support and, um, yeah. you know, there would always be work for anyone that turns up at Scobrua, but as a business and financially it wouldn't have held four brothers or three um matthew was already doing his own thing so at that time there was a bakery called the crusty cob which i mean i don't really remember but um, the bakers were welsh kate and will and they were retiring and put their business up for sale you'd have to ask joe but his parents suggested to him that setting up a bakery or buying that bakery and running a bakery would be a a good business and he must have thought so too and he, I just remember him ringing um and saying this is what I'm thinking of doing would you like to do that too um wow. <laughs> and you know we'd sort of approached it from that's a, a hard life yeah well we didn't know it. we didn't know we just thought it sounded great we thought oh yeah cake and yeah <laughs> you know how hard can it be I can make biscuits or, you know. um, (laughs) Wow. (laughs) uh, So he set about learning how to bake while I was still studying and he went to, he sat in, he wasn't enrolled, but he was allowed to sit in on courses at Glasgow College of Food Technology, I think. And he also, the family had some contacts through the cheese business who ran bakery businesses in England. And I think Michael Fink also at the Western Isles at the time had some contacts which were helpful I can't remember the details of who those were but so Joe went and basically had a a fast track apprenticeship as a baker um learned how learned the basics and then set about he would prove himself later (laughs) I'm sorry I was struggling there (laughs) um and we looked at buying the crusty cob but um we didn't have any money um, Where was that? Was that in? It was what is now the Whale and Dolphin okay. Trust building next to the Chinese. What is now the Chinese restaurant? Yeah. It was the captain's table at that time. Mm. But you know they were asking tens of thousands. I think it was. I think it was seventy five thousand. But I could wow. be wrong. That's a lot of money. And we didn't have. I had certainly no money at yeah. all. Joe had a small amount of money that his grand, his mum's mum had left him. Um, but nowhere near that amount. So Garth had recently bought Leffen, that were the vets now based mm. at the side of. Um it was a you know really big bungalow with a big garage that Garth wasn't using. There were there was like part of the house that Garth and Shona weren't using. So the family said we could have that bit, we could live in there was like a, a kitchen, a bathroom and a room wow. which we lived in. Um, and then the garage we converted into a bakery. It had been, it, at the time it was full of cheese, which was being matured, but the farm were building a cellar um, around that time. So we were, we, our first job was to take all the cheese out 
which was quite a lot of heavy lifting and then sort of do up this garage and make it into a bakery. Wow. Joe bought the the equipment. He had enough money from his grand's inheritance to buy, to buy an bacon. oven right. and a few other bits and pieces. And that's what we wow. did. So that's what, that's how we started. And where did you sell? <laughs> how did you sell? I mean, it was very much um, heavily supported and enabled by Joe's family, right. um, obviously providing the premises I think we had to pay a peppercorn rent of a pound. I don't know if we actually ever paid them any of them. <laughs> we owe them a few quid. They, at the time, were doing liquid milk, not just cheese. So they were pasteurising and cartoning milk. I think you spoke to Chris yes, about this. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they had Margot Bryce uh-huh. uh, delivering liquid milk right. right the way down to... Certainly Finifer. I'm not sure if it went to Iona as well. It probably did. So we piggybacked onto their delivery run and put the bread in the van. So it went to all the shops, you know, the Salon Spar. Cameron White had a shop Mm -hmm. there in Salon at the same time. You know, Pennygill Stores, uh, Ferry Shop, Sandy's Shop in Finifert, and the two shops in Benesson, Trevor Wade and Glenn McKellar. In fact, when I first came, when the bakery was setting up before we made bread, I used to do the milk round around Tobermory with Brendan in the nice. morning, sort of half asleep, six wow. in the morning. So, yeah. And yeah. your time, the the day of a baker, I imagine, starts very early in the yeah. morning. Okay, yeah. I mean, if we knew what was ahead of us, Alistair, we'd never have done it. It right. was a living hell. Mm. Not going <laughs> to yeah. lie. Yeah. We worked six days a week which was stupid because what was to stop us saying we're only going to work five. But I think we just were too frightened to turn away any business, even if it was only sort of five loaves or something. Um, We just felt we had to do everything we could. Um, We, I think we started off by getting up early, like four in the morning we just started. It was just Joe and I at first. Um, we used to listen to the World Service because there was no FM radio at that time. Right, okay. Or, well, there was very, there was, it was really? either it was either the World Service or Atlantic Two Five Two or something. Yeah. And Atlantic Two Five Two was fine for an hour, but not for a whole shift. It's the same songs again. Just, and again. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we'd listen to the World Service. Wow. <laughs> so up at four, wow. Margot would come by half six or something. Uh, maybe it was even I can't even I can't even remember the exact timings. But eventually getting up early wasn't early enough and we used to do a night shift so very quickly. Um wow. it turned to a night shift. Um And was it only just the two of you? At first, but not for long. Our first employee was Fiona McLean or Fiona Itali, um, who is Alistair McLean's daughter. Mm-hmm. Um and she was actually a trained baker who oh, knew brilliant. what she was doing. <laughs> So she came, but the first thing she did was Christmas cakes that first Christmas. And um, we took orders for them. We didn't have a shop or anything for the first two years, but we, we sold to the co-op. Um, oh, that's brilliant. You could do that then. Yeah. And I mean, I, I'm getting a bit chopped about. That's fine. Um, and then we had uh, our second employee was Jim Barron. Um, he And he was from Bristol. He'd had his own bakery down there and he was, he was very good at, the, you know, he worked very hard, um, but you know we ha- we had a a a lot of staff over the years. <laughs> we had a lot of people 
really badly letting us down. Mm. And, you know, the first time we went away for more than a night, we'd gone to a, it wasn't even like for fun. We'd gone to a trade show in Birmingham. We had two guys baking who'd come from Edinburgh. Um, and we just, we got a phone call to say that they'd disappeared. Oh, um, you know, and things like that just happened several times. And we just, you know, <sighs> just like, you can't pay people to care about your business, really. You know, they. you learn. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we had quite a lot of hard knocks along the way and quite a lot of um, head-in-hand moments, yeah. How did you come to win the first shop, then? Uh, the shop? Oh, so, yeah, well, we'd been going for about two years and we'd built up to, you know, all the shops on the island and... Colin Tyree on the really? ferry as well. Um, and then one day... That's we, a big scale. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, before we had the shop, it was busy. But when we got the shop, it really was busy. Um, we'd be doing, you know, more than 100, maybe 200 loaves and thousands of rolls at some, you know. Wow. Just really, really busy. <laughs> but, yeah, one day I was just walking down the street and um Ian Johnson's butcher shop. It was blue painted blue at the time and it was um I don't know if you remember it or before, it was my before time, your time. Yeah. He had one half of the shop as his butchery counter and then the other half was leased to a lady called Kay. I can't remember her second name and she did vegetables and things on one half. But I think he'd had enough. I don't think he ever it was his father's shop. Um right. and he I think he'd come back after serving in the army and um, picked up picked up the family business, but I don't think he ever really wanted it. Anyway, there was a you know one of these index cards, the striped cards with the red line and the blue lines underneath. Yes. Blue tack to the window, shop for sale, inquire within, or something like that. He'd had enough. Right. And he he was selling it, and we inquired, <laughs> and the price was affordable. So, you know, f- with a loan, <laughs> yes, yeah. um, so we bought it and he, you know, w- it took a few months for the sale to go through, like all the legal things that had to go through, but he turned off the electricity and went, by the time we got the keys, there were freezers full of meat that were no longer frozen. It was grim. <laughs> So there was a lot of work in getting rid of the smell for a start. <laughs> That's gonna cling to bed like nobody's business. Um so we did we did quite a bit of work getting that up and ready. But it was opened May ninety-six. We opened up. Wow. Yeah. But that was actually brilliant for me because I had really struggled with night shifts and Of course, you're a human being on Mull. I mean we were twenty I was twenty-two when when I came here. We right. You know, we didn't see people because we were sleeping during the daytime. Yeah. It was particularly hard in the winter because we didn't see no much light. daylight. Uh, Our only kind of social engagement was being in the Tobermory pantomime. Oh, yeah. Which was actually great fun. Yeah. And it was a way of meeting some people. But, you know, I really missed people my own age. Joe's family were all great. But, you know, I, just, I had a great sense of missing out yeah. on well what what other people were enjoying my friends were enjoying their first jobs and buying houses by that time we'd moved out of the room next to the bakery because it was too much like working and living all in one we got a caravan um which was great but um 
I just I those two years were just characterized by a lot of hard work and feeling like I'm not fitting in for me. Right. Um so having the shop which was became my kind of remit Domain, yeah. was great, really good and it meant that I met everyone in the yeah, town. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, that was it was brilliant. I loved it. <laughs> successes of the shop would you say oh do you know it probably wasn't as successful as it could have been because I was driven by oh that looks nice we'll, we'll order that or Aye, yeah. and we were very sort of sensitive to price and probably didn't I mean people may think it was expensive but we probably didn't actually charge enough for things right, compared okay. to what we should have been to make a decent profit you know we made a lot of money in the summer as many businesses do but nothing and it all just you lose it all in the winter um and for a while you know in the winter it could be just me and my knitting in the shop um Mm. which wouldn't be like possible now because so busy you've established a successful business as the bakery at what point did the island bakery and the biscuits come into being Mm. well i think i suppose we'd been running the shop and the bakery for a number of years and as i'd mentioned earlier you know you're making a lot of hay in the summer, but yeah. you're not doing very well in the winter because of the seasonality of mull. And what we were making was very fresh and wasn't so good the second day. Right. You know, we would never have sold a loaf the second day. It was always really? given to Garth's pigs. Yeah. Um, all the bread was always fresh every day. So we're looking for a product that we could make that could travel and we'd keep for more than one day because... There was a whole market out there that we could reach and, you know, being from Mull, I think we had a, an a attractive brand, yeah. proposition for people. People would like to buy something nice to eat from Mull as they do with the cheese or yeah. the fish or other whiskey products yeah. from the island. So um, having the deli and seeing what was on the market to buy was quite a good insight because I was getting the catalogues from all the wholesalers, you know, UK wide. So I could see what was on the market really. And what worked and, because the sales yeah, were there or not. Um, or just, you know, what was missing um, or what, you know, what, what, where were the niches? Yeah. I think the options we had were to go with like a fruitcake type offering or biscuits at the time there were quite a lot of nice biscuits on the market but also around that this was coming up to sort of the late 90s early 2000 um the organic food movement was really coming up i mean some would say it was maybe a bit of a fad and a bit of a fashion at that point but if it makes a difference it's making a difference it's not always the right choice um because local food whether it's organic or not is probably a better option yeah. than bringing in organic yeah. from New Zealand. apples from New Zealand yeah. if you've got apples here but whatever but um you know all all food choices have got pros and cons yes but a lot of what was uh, good about organic was appealing and at that time the only real organic biscuit brand was the Dutchy original brand which was well distributed and 
going well and there didn't seem to be any other challengers in that niche in that right. market so we thought well, we'll make biscuits and we'll make them organic and we'll make them on mull <laughs> so what year was that That's... uh well we first started making them in 2001 and we we had a stall at the speciality and fine food fair olympia in london which is where we were launching them and that was in fact today's the 12th of september is it or 11th it's the 11th day. 11th well, we were there on September oh, 11, um, yeah. 2001, and yeah. we were next to Orkney Ice Cream, and oh. we were on a sort of Scottish Highlands and Islands food pavilion. Surely they should have been quite further up the chain over there, but just the, below it, Shetland. And... This guy, he was lovely. He had no real sort of Orcadian mm. accent, and uh, he came he came around the corner to our stall, and I thought he said. A cheque's been cashed at the World Trade Centre in New York. But then very yeah. quickly, you know, the whole place was buzzing and yeah. there were a few people with little screens on their stands and people were crowding around and looking at the uh, pretty horrific things. The familiar footage, there. Yeah, yeah, unfortunately. Yeah. So that, that was when we launched yeah. <laughs> the biscuits. So it's 19 years ago? Yeah. 19 yeah. years? Gosh, what are you going to do for the 20th anniversary? <laughs> Hopefully it won't be marked with anything historically equivalent. Oh, God, oh, <laughs> yeah. And I remember talking to you about it um, when first we met. How did you come up with the recipe for the for the, the biscuits? And what was the first biscuit? We did a lot of asking around the family, like particularly my dad's family. Um, his sisters were quite good bakers. My granny had always been a really good baker. We got various people's family recipes for shortbread, and they're all they're all pretty much, you know, that shortbread has a formula of proportions yes, of yeah, butter, yeah. flour, and sugar. So that it's short. Yes, yeah. and some people add corn flour or icing sugar mm. or rice flour or semolina and all sorts. So we just, we just kind of, I mean, that's not my strength. That's Joe's yeah. attention to detail. I'm a kind of that would be nice, you know, kind of idea person, and the lemon melts were my idea. And are they I the just, biggest seller? Though? They are the best seller. But again, I can't say I came up with a recipe. I just thought, a lemon biscuit with white chocolate sounds good. Make that, Joe. <laughs> so he's he's the, the hard worker that, you know, makes these high-flying ideas because they, into reality. Although nowadays, actually, Fiona um, Itali makes these things reality from our highfalutin ideas and we're, we're much more organized about it these days but yeah there's a lovely science behind it as well in terms of proportion and in terms of the economics of the marketplace that you know i've always been interested when we were talking was it christmas for christmas before last and you're saying oh god the price of butter because yes. china's come into the market yeah yeah and that affects the, mm -hmm. the chemical makeup of the biscuit and getting the balance right with the proportions and stuff and maintaining the same product. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, well, and make, making a profit as well, well because buttered, even in the co-op, it used to be 85p a, 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 a block yeah. for years. And then, you know, it's £1.70 now. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's extraordinary. Yeah. But, you know, with us, the we did have quite a few years pretty bad financially yeah. because particularly because the butter price had had doubled or more and our prices are fixed for the period of a contract or a catalogue. So you, you can't change the price of your biscuits every week. And so 
Oh, I'd never thought yeah, of that. God. Yeah, it was, and and you keep sort of hoping that oh, it, it can't carry on; it'll come back down. And, you know, global commodity markets are mm. forecasting that it'll come down, and it doesn't. And you know, it took us a while before we were able to correct the the price. So those four in the morning sparks <laughs> were worth it. Well, yeah, it remains to be seen. Yeah. No, I mean, I th- I think you know we've had a great time actually yeah. on Mull. Yeah. I'm glad we're here. Yeah. Before we round up, um, there are two significant individuals in your life who we've not met, <laughs> not yet mentioned. When did the boys come along? Um, well, Fergus was born in March 2001 and Rory in March 2004. And were you in the house yeah. by then or were you still in the caravan? Or? Yeah, we, we moved into the house in 19... 19- Christmas 1999. Okay. So, yeah. Had a, a gentle warm-up of the house before the kids came along. That's lovely. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. And it, the house, was it built by... <laughs> Should we leave this one? <laughs> was this built... Was your house built by another member of the, who's done the podcast before, shall we say? Um, oh, who do you mean? Howie. <laughs> yeah, he did help, yeah. yeah. No, we, we did build the house on a very low budget and it was probably a very false economy because um, Joe did quite a lot of what he could do himself and we, we hired a few you know willing helpers amongst our friends like I think we had Howie Pittman and Brennan Fairburns and Callum Hall even was there for a bit and my dad when he was over oh. um, we did have some proper builders as well we had Angus Og and oh, yeah. Oki yeah. Nod yes, for a bit yeah, as well yeah. they did anything that needed actual skill <laughs> and Dan Mawinney was also right. on site with them a few times um, but yeah we we didn't we were quite, we're quite young and you know there's so many choices to make with building a house, like yeah. choose your door handles and your light switches. And yeah. You haven't a clue. You, just, you know, you just pick the... Well, yeah. they're all rubbish. <laughs> but, it's a lovely home, though. It's great. <laughs> yeah, we're still working on it. Yeah. yeah, we moved in without any skirting boards and probably not without without a building warrant and things and very naughty, but I've got it all now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is there anything you want to say at all, that any kind of observation or anything you're thinking of that in your reflections and, and, and thinking about what you're going to say, is there anything that's, that you feel you want to say? There's also the story of your, your mum and dad and your sister coming to live here as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's all well, that. Well, that was a surprise. Yeah, I never expected them all to live here. But yeah, my sister, she'd been helping us with bookkeeping and accounting mm-hmm. over the years because that's what her job was. She had Sophie and Sophie was born prematurely, like Paul. And I think Lynn was looking at the prospect of sending her to a big school in Belfast and seeing, you know, the small class sizes here and the attention that she undoubtedly did get when they did move was a real pull for Lynn coming. So they moved over here and Sophie was three and... She's 20 now, so 17 years ago. And she's successful in her yeah. own right. So. Well, she's working in the biscuit factory ah, now, which fantastic. I'm not sure is a dream job, but she likes it enough, I think. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Mm. Well, thank you very much, then. That's absolutely fantastic. You're welcome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there were lots of other things I wanted to say, but, I, you know, I was sort of thinking about going to Edinburgh, like growing up in Belfast, which is such a, 
special circumstance type of place where yeah. everything is heightened and you're very aware of what side you're on or you know where you fit and what side of an argument you might be on and then going to Edinburgh meeting people from all over the place and realizing they didn't know anything about any of those things that mattered to yes. us or care yes and you know they this sort of you know I talked about my granny Simpson and her sort of loyalty to the royal family and queen and country and all that and you know being in the mainland of the UK I suppose and seeing how little people who actually lived there were here cared or thought about those things was quite a revelation um and it made me feel angry that my granny had invested so much faith in this other country and it was all a lie because they didn't care or it seemed that they didn't so I mean I don't know I don't know if my parents would agree with that viewpoint but um I don't know it's like a bit like when you know you see interviews of the astronauts or mm -hmm. you know people who've gone to space and looked back yeah. and they see how you don't see borders color tribes sex gender race <laughs> And I guess that's a bit like what the experience of leaving Northern Ireland has been for me. Um, and, that, and now and again, I, I, I guess, you know, the, the journey I've been on and the liberal education I've had and, you know, I, I kind of expect that everyone else has been on the same journey, but they haven't. And it's quite a shock when confronted with a view that's bigoted or yeah. um you know perhaps less understanding of gay people yes. or anything like that from from people that i thought would know better back home another story i'll tell you which it's a sort of I mean, it might sound, it sounds a bit sensationalist but you asked about my parents were very nearly going to celebrate their wedding anniversary at Le Mans Hotel, the wedding anniversary on the 17th of February and I can't remember if it was Miss, my, me or my sister that was not well because they'd arranged for my granny to babysit and at the last minute they just thought oh no she, she's not well enough we'll stay in and they were going to go to Le Mans Ho House Hotel which had the most terrific bomb that night. Um, one of my dad's um, childhood friends was killed at it um but it's uh, they there was some the, the 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 ira would normally phone and give a warning and a code word but they uh, basically they couldn't find the change for the phone or something you know it, it just went much worse than it should have normally they would set a device give a warning people would be evacuated and damage would be minimalized but it didn't work on that occasion and they'd they planted devices that had like napalm or some oh, sort God. of awful substance that stuck to your body and burnt. yeah, um, so twelve people died and I don't know how many were injured in that and it's like bizarre like the detail of it like the people that died were members of a border collie club or something you know who would know that choosing a particular breed of dog yeah. could lead to your death we were lucky that 
my parents weren't there. I mean, even if they had been there, they might have been okay. But and I do I remember a summer holiday up in the north coast walking. I think we might even have been at the Giants Causeway, but it was somewhere up in the North Antrim area. And my parents met people that they knew. It was like people the people were grandparent type age relative to them and they had a child with them that was our age and there was no parent. And we chatted away and how, you know, ha 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 how are you, blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. And then they walked up, you know, parted ways. And then I remember my parents saying, Oh yeah, that you know, the parents of the child had been killed and you know, it's that's and how sorry they were and oh, you know, they're doing well as grandparents and you know, that sort of thing. And and the neighbours that we had in our second house, their their parents were police reservists and they were killed in a car bomb. Um, you know, people that we'd have seen all the time hanging out the washing in the garden next door one day and the next they were blown up. Um so I say it didn't affect me, but Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that was the reality of yeah. it. But yeah. But I don't know what the answer is. I don't know at mm. all. It's not doesn't happen here, which is great. <laughs> <laughs> well it doesn't seem to happen anymore. Yeah. Anyway. Thank you so much, Don. It was just magic to get a chance to sit and have a natter. I look forward to catching up with yourself, Joe, Fergus and Rory again soon. Don and I chatted after the edit for this episode had been done and it turns out that the girl that Don and her family met up in County Antrim had actually been in preschool with Don and had tragically lost her parents in the Le Mans bombing which Don mentions. Don and I talked about so, so much more, so I'll save quite a lot of it for another day if I ever get around to doing another themed episode or two. She spoke very fondly of staff in both the bakery and the shop, and went into detail about the importance of Antoper in her early years here on the island. I think an Antoper episode could be a very nice thing to pull together at some point in the future, so keep your ears peeled for that at some point in the years to come. As I said a few episodes ago, I'm hoping to speak to people in Salon and Loch Don and the other areas of the islands that I've missed out on so far. There's so many stories and tales to be told in these islands and I just I want to try and do them justice. There are a couple of people forthcoming that I'm very excited to talk to, so I'll hopefully have more for you in the coming weeks. Thank you to everyone who came along to the sports live event the other week. That was um, It was just lovely to be together and to hear all of those tales. Again, there's so much more to be found out in all those fronts. I think we just skimmed the surface. Thank you so much to Hugh Dan McLennan, who put so much effort into the shinty section. That was really something. So thank you so much, Hugh Dan. The event is still live on Facebook. So if you want to catch it at any point, it's there for you to dip in and out of as you wish. Now, if you wanted to support the podcast, please feel free to click on the donate tab on whatwedointhewinter.com. But obviously don't worry at all if you can't or don't want to. I'd much rather that you listened and went on a kind of adventure with us than not. And on that note, thank you so much, of course, to our monthly supporters. Needless to say, if you're a monthly supporter and you find yourself in a different circumstance and not able to support the podcast anymore, don't worry in any way, shape or form about this. I totally understand. It's a constantly changing world. As ever, if you're a listener and you wanted to leave a star review on whichever platform you use to listen to, I'd be really grateful. It just helps spread the word about the project and makes these stories more available and to more and more listeners. 
Thank you to listeners in Australia and New Zealand for leaving reviews as well. Although we don't see them in our iTunes store here in the UK, you can see them online. So thank you so much. That makes a really big difference. As ever, thank you to all of you who reach out to say hello. It always makes my day to hear from you. Thank you for listening. I hope life has been kind to you and I look forward to catching up with you again soon. Take care wherever you are. Morning time. Shinakadeh.